Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 192. For a full list of today's show notes, including web links and music selections, please head over to www.wildlensinc.org forward slash EOC 192. Real quick, I just want to take a moment to encourage you to please head over to patreon.com slash wildlenscollective and make a donation to expand the work that we're doing here. As one of the longest-running conservation podcasts out there, we are uniquely positioned to do some incredible work in the future, but it will require additional funding. So if you can manage even a buck a show, your donation will fuel that work, and it also comes with perks. Thank you so much for your contributions in advance. Today, we join Eyes on Conservation's Matthew Podolsky in an interview with John Casby, director of the documentary When Lions Become Lambs, winner of the Tribeca Film Festival's Best Editing Award in the documentary competition. The last decade or so has seen catastrophic destruction of the African elephant. New generation of poachers threatens to exterminate. The time come when we must take a stand to all the poachers to all the buyers your days are numbered Casby spent much of his 20s in Kenya, chronicling the lives and hardships of not only the rangers protecting endangered elephants in the region, but also the difficult decisions poachers make to support their families. Casby tells their stories with disciplined impartiality. However, viewers may struggle to remain emotionally unwavering as you're really dropped into the shoes of a community bursting with complexities, each doing what it must to survive. Well, um, the first thing I'm going to have you do is uh, I'm just going to have you introduce yourself. Uh, tell me your name and uh, a little bit about who you are. Yeah, my name is John Casby. I'm the director of When Lambs Become Lions, and I've been working on you know, documentary films from a pretty young age. My parents were, were Christian missionaries, and so I kind of grew up in this environment where the first you know, 13 to 14 years of my life was, was kind of traveling around the world. Um, you know, spent a lot of time in Kenya, Serbia, India, and Australia, you know, doing that, that type of religious work, and then have shifted quite a bit and now work in documentary. But there's quite a few parallels between them, between the two lifestyles. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I was kind of um, raised in this environment that made transitioning to documentary filmmaking make a lot of sense. Wow, super fascinating. Tell me, I mean, I wonder if you can just give us a very sort of brief overview of, of what your film is about. Yeah, When Lambs Become Lions is about two men on either side of the ivory trade. So one is an ivory dealer and the other is a wildlife ranger. 
and they are cousins. So, you know, that was a that was a small detail, but something that had huge implications. And it was something we realized about eight months into the process, um, the relationship between these two men. And it, it was the moment when I realized that this is not a short film and that this could actually be something um, longer. And I just think it really speaks to the complexity of the of the situation on the ground. It, it certainly does. And, and the film is is amazing. But before we dive into some of the more some of the more detailed questions I have for you about uh, the project, I, I feel like we should upfront talk about what opportunities uh, listeners might have to, to see the film. Yeah, for sure. So it's premiering in New York City this weekend at Village East Cinema, and I'll be doing Q&As as well. And then it'll be continuing in New York for a week. And it's also playing in Los Angeles right now at the Lemley Theater. And then we're expanding to a bunch of other cities um, over the coming weeks. Um, and then, you know, in 2020, it'll be available on VOD. Excellent. So, is, and is there like a website where folks can uh, sort of check to see if it's coming to a theater in their area? Yeah. So the website is onelambs.com and we're also on all the social medias. Um, so those, that's the best way to stay updated. So tell me what your entry point into this story was. Yeah, good question. So I'd done other short films in Kenya before this, um, three of them, and it was through those projects that I had relationships with people that, you know, relationships with Kenyans on the ground who were telling me that there had been so many filmmakers and journalists that had come to Kenya and kind of done stories around poaching, but that they hadn't seen anything that actually looked at it from the perspective of the poachers and that they kind of felt like that was this missing piece, like it was an oversaturated space. X, who was an Ivy dealer there, like, just come meet him, you know, you'll like him. First hour of sitting down with him, he kind of found a way to flip all my preconceived notions around the issue on on their head. And um, and I was blown away. I mean, I kind of went into the situation with him thinking, I think what a lot of people think about when they think about it, which is that, you know, poaching is bad. And the people that do it are are making, you know, bad choices. And the explained to me early on is that there isn't actual separation between these two sides. They see themselves as one community that is kind of forced into one side or the other. Um, but in reality, they're all still friends. They grew up together. Um, and there's a lot of crossover between the two sides. And when he started explaining that to me, it started to click in that like this is way more complex in the way I think we sometimes funnel these these stories through through media into these very like good versus evil Hollywood narratives. And, you know, he was saying things to me like, you know, we're out there killing elephants. But my father was killed when I was a child. You know, he was shot in the head 10 times and it, there were no repercussions. It was just swept under the rug. And yeah, you know, he was very direct, too. He was very honest. He was like making eye contact. I kind of thought he would be a little bit secretive or shady and and opaque, but he wasn't at all. Um, I found myself like laughing with him. I found myself being charmed by this guy. And that was not what I expected to happen. And I kind of left the interaction thinking about him a lot and wanting to spend more time with him and wanting to to see more of the choices he made and to understand his logic behind them. This this character X is uh the the first person that we meet and is this this like introduction to his community and he's kind of walking around and it, I mean you know right from the beginning that that he's supposed to be a bad guy but he's so compelling. Yeah. Yeah. We really I mean we really like we fell for him. This project was made possible because of the relationship that we formed, you know, and it was about seven, eight months of just living with them, spending time together without really shooting. And it was like those, that time of building a foundation of friendship where it was like, we'd live together, we'd eat together. We would like ask each other questions. He got to know me just as well as I got to know him. He started to understand my motivations for wanting to be there and why I thought this film had value and why people need to see what was actually going on. Um, and that kind of became what made the whole thing possible because I think without that, 
especially when you're filming people doing illegal things and, and insensitive situations and really taking huge risks to be a part of a project, um, there needs to be that foundation for it to for it to work. Yeah, that's and and I mean it's really cool. It's it's really interesting to hear you say that because I mean watching this film, um, and and you know as I mentioned, like I I, I have experience working as a filmmaker in uh, communities that are experiencing you know s- somewhat you know a, a comparable sort of situation where there is this sort of economic push for community members to get involved in an illegal wildlife trade, right? So I, I you know I I I have this understanding of um like the difficulty associated with like getting that sort of insider perspective um and gaining that trust and so i mean there were numerous moments watching your film where i was just blown away by the level of access that you had um and how clearly comfortable your characters were with your presence there you you spent eight months with uh this character x before you even started shooting you said yeah, yeah, and I don't mean eight months like living with him the whole time. A lot of that I was there with him, but it was also you know I'd come back to I'd come back home and take a week off here and there sure. and rest things like that. But but yeah, I mean we talked a lot. We talked a lot over that first year, and and very little of it involved a camera. And you know, it, 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 one thing that I think people you know people watch the film and they sometimes have that reaction of like how in the world did you get a camera into these situations? And the what happened was like there's nothing in the film that takes place that I didn't already experience with them without a camera. Right. And like going on hunts with them without a camera, watching Hassan and his wife get into fights without a camera, seeing them interact with their kids, seeing like those those really you know difficult tender moments without a camera made it normal for me to be there. And so when I was there with a camera, it wasn't like this was new. It wasn't new content. It wasn't a new experience. It was something I'd already been a part of. And so they were much more, um, and it got peace with me, with me with me filming it. Sure, sure. And so uh, what was the time period? You know, how long were you actually uh, shooting? You know, the time window that we see play out in the film. I was I would go for three to six months at a time. And then I'd, you know, take a little bit of a break here and there and dump footage back in New York. Um, And that went on for about three and a half years. And then we did about a year of editing. And during that year of editing, I would go back um, every now and then for like pickups or when something, you know, new was unfolding. Um. Yeah. Gotcha. But it was, it was sporadic in ways, but also like I didn't do anything else. You know, I wasn't working on anything else when I did this. In a lot of ways, the film started to become an excuse to be there. You know, I really became close, not just with the characters in the film, but also the community around them. Um, I'd enjoyed being there. Like I really enjoyed living there with them. And so the film in a lot of ways kind of became a way to continue doing that. And, and yeah, but it was important. I mean, it was, it was the foundation. Like, I don't think it, I don't think we would have gotten the types of moments we did if that wasn't underneath at all. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I wonder if you worry, I mean, this, this is a conversation that I think when you're following a, 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 a character like this character X in, in your film, right. Who you, you feel for him, you know, you, you start to understand that, you know, this is somebody who's maybe doing things that we think are bad, but that we don't necessarily see him as a bad person. Right. Mm-hmm. But you still see him doing these bad things, right. These things that like, well, uh, you know, uh, I mean, regardless of like what, you know, uh, sort of society, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, the sort of attitude that, that society has towards people that are doing this type of thing that are that are poaching elephants. I guess my question is like, what what was it like to, to be there with this group of poachers, like seeking to kill elephants? 
It was really hard. I mean, like, uh, you know, the, I went on 10 hunts total. The first three hunts I went on with them, they didn't let me bring a camera. And so I'm like, you know, watching them plan this, watching them go through and do this like devastating act. And, you know, when you have a camera, in a lot of ways, it can kind of separate you from the reality of what's going on. You have a heightened sense of purpose in being there and documenting it and saving it for other people to see. But when that's stripped, you're just a part of it. And it was, I mean, I had to take time off. You know, I had to take time and step away because I was getting to a place where I, I was having a hard time relating to them, understanding them and having a hard, having a hard time loving them at certain points um, after some of these hunts. But eventually I got to a point where, you know, I, I eventually, by the end of it, was like having a deeper understanding as to why they were doing this. And I, I got to see the consequences of what happened when they didn't succeed. And for them, it was like they weren't feeding their kids. And so I had to recognize, like, they're waking up and going to sleep every day thinking about how am I going to feed my kids. So when that is your first thought in the morning, you don't really have time to get to thinking about ethics. Like, there's, there's privilege in having the opportunity to think about ethics and what is right and wrong and... and um and getting to that that kind of dimension. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it, 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 it ebbed and flowed. I mean, there were times where I was like fascinated by what they were doing and wanted to understand it more. There were times where I was disgusted by what they were doing and I just wanted to be away from them. I needed space. But I think at the core, like there was a real friendship there. We, we really cared about each other and we still do. And, you know, I spent more time with them than I did with anyone else, you know, during my mid-20s. Um, they're forever a part of my life. Eyes on conservation, assemble! We want to hear from you. We make these shows because we're passionate about the subject matter. We care about what happens to these animals. We care about what happens to these ecosystems, what happens to the planet, and each other too. But we know that you do too. We also make these shows because of you. The Eyes on Conservation podcast truly is about connecting all of us. I think he's talking to you. So the next time you hear something that makes you laugh out loud or makes you cry, has you question the world a little bit, or just makes you go, hmm, let us know. We want to include your voice and your thoughts on future episodes. Here's how. Take out your smartphone and open the recording app on it. On an iPhone, it's called Voice Memos. On an Android, you can download Smart Voice Recorder or something similar. Hit the record button and hold the phone just like you would if you were talking to us on the other end. Or hold it about four inches from your face. Just don't get too close to the mic. You'll know it's recording because the waveform will start to dance around and the timer will start a ticking. Here's the good part. Tell us whatever you want to tell us. Tell us who you are, what you do all day, what your story is. The point is, we want to hear you. When you hit stop, save the file with something descriptive, like your name and the date. Then open that file right there on the same app and look for a little square with an arrow poking out the top. This is how you share the file. From there, you can select the email app on your device, and if there is something specific you want to talk to us about, just jot a little note down for us. Then email it to info at wildlensinc.org. Boom, it's that easy. Oh, look, here comes one now. Oh my goodness, that Gregory Haddock is just the most charming young man I ever heard. Aw, oh, shucks. Thank you, kind lady. We hope to hear from you soon. As you said, right, um, it's it's an, lots of documentary films have been made about this issue. Uh, it's gotten a ton of media coverage over the last decade or so. It's It's the first time I've watched a film and feel like I really understood what it's like to be there. Um, 
that was the goal. You know, it, it felt like that was the piece that was missing. There's been so many docs that are like holistic around the whole issue and a lot of docs that give you a ton of information and facts and that kind of thing. But I, there wasn't like what we felt was missing was an experiential piece that showed you the perspective that was kind of being labeled and categorized and like kept in this corner. What we're finding is that like the people that were being put in that corner did not feel separate from everyone else. You know, they felt very much so connected to the Rangers, very much so human. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so, you know, and, and one of the other aspects of, of this and, and, you know, doing what you were doing is, um, is the risk, right? I mean, I, 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 I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like the risk associated with this, because I mean, there's a lot of discussion about, I mean, people getting shot on both sides, both poachers and, you know, rangers getting shot. And I mean, you said you went out on 10 hunts um, with this group of poachers. You know, what was, what was it like sort of assessing that risk and like deciding that this was something that was, that was worth it for, for you to do? Yeah. I mean, the risk, the risk kind of came after the relationship. So like once we were close, it was clear that like, this was something that needed to be done. One, I think in part to show people what's actually going on and what it's like, but two, you know, the characters are taking a huge risk by being a part of this project. It like felt non-negotiable. It felt like necessary for me to take similar risk to, to be with them and to like live the way they do and to like, you know, go through these choices with them. And once you, once I was, once I already cared about them, once they were a part of my life, like it, it felt natural in a lot of ways. Like it felt natural to take on to like, you know, sleep in the same place, eat the same type of food, spend your time in the same way. And then when they make like risky choices, like being there for it, you know, being a part of those, being a part of those, uh, those days. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, it was, it was a lot harder at the beginning than it was at the end. You know, at the beginning I was still kind of figuring out how it all worked and figuring out what the consequences would be like and figuring out how they get out of those tricky situations. By the end, it was like, I felt like I had my footing, understood what they were doing and also understood why, like I understood their motivations in a much deeper way. Not to say that that justifies what they're doing, but I did have a sense of like, I know what's going to happen if they don't succeed here. And also like the, you know, I think when people hear poaching, they think of like, you know, uh, men with machine guns taking down like 60 elephants like that's not what these guys are doing these guys are killing one to two a year and they're also very specific in the types they take down you know like they're they're not killing mothers that have kids they're looking for like old males that are going to die in the next two to three years and the process of killing is like an art form to them you know this is a skill that's been passed down from generation to generation through the fathers and lucas will spend weeks you know creating the specific type of poison for the elephant. And then it's more weeks actually finding the elephants, paying off everyone in between them and the elephants. And then once they actually hit it with an arrow, you're looking at eight to 12 hours of tracking, waiting for the poison to spread and for the elephant to fall. And at at every step, like it's extremely dangerous. Like if the wind goes in the wrong, if the wind is going behind them towards the elephant, it's over. The elephant will smell them and, and attack. So they have, they're constantly checking the direction of the wind to make sure that they are behind the elephant and that the wind is coming from the elephant's direction so the elephant does not smell them. Um, so yeah, as, as I kind of got deeper into it and realized just like how specific and how careful and how like precise the what they're doing is, um, it, it shifted for me a little bit, you know? Not to, not to say that it made it okay or not to say that I was ever in support of it. Like it was always painful to see and it was always, always an awful, awful occurrence. But I also understood that like, you know, the kids weren't going to eat if they didn't succeed. That there were hospital bills that weren't going to get paid. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's starting to make sense, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's totally, to make- totally, man. And, and it's, um, you know, there's, there's, I, I, there's an sort of an undercurrent of this, uh, I feel like in, in your film, maybe, um, 
And then, and then, you know, but I think this is also like a much bigger picture issue th- throughout many countries in Africa, right? Where it's like, there is this sort of like Western pressure to like preserve, you know, these shrinking populations, large mammal species on the African continent. And, you know, the, the blame is put sort of locally or, or even if it's not you sort of regardless of like where the blame is placed, it's like, I, I feel like it's easy for us here in the U S to forget about the fact that us living here in the United States, like, like we have a, we have a, a right to hunt. Like you or I could go out and buy a hunting license and go legally hunt an animal. Right. Um, and you know, I just hearing you explain sort of the process involved in going out and hunting one of these elephants and how it is a tradition. And there is this, you know, process that has been handed down through generations of how to, you know, concoct this poison. It it, it feels like that's a part of it, right? Like the, the tradition and, and this idea that like, you know, generations ago, like this used to be something that, that was a part of their culture. For sure. I mean, a lot of these men saw poaching become illegal in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like a poaching was made illegal, I think, 46 years ago. And so for a lot of their fathers, like this was a way of life. This was like... Mm-hmm a skill that was passed on. This is how they survived. And, and now you kind of, when you step back and look at it, it's like outsiders have come in and started taking steps to protect the land and protect the animals. And it gets really complicated. We start realizing that in, in some situations they're allowing other outsiders to come in and pay huge amounts of money to kill these animals. But then when locals do it, they get killed. And they're aware of that, you know, like these guys are aware of that dynamic. And I think, you know, it's, it's really complicated. It's really complicated when you start getting into like looking at who's coming from where and when money gets involved and power, it, it, it seems like there's a lot of corruption uh, that starts to surface quickly. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and again, it's like, we're in, in your film, we're sort of experiencing this entirely through the eyes of these two main characters in, in your film. So, I mean, you, you don't you, like watching the film, you know, you don't really know for sure. Like, is is this corruption or is it not? And, you know, I'm thinking about the issue of payment for the poachers, right, is like this uh, very significant issue throughout the film. You know, this particular team of poachers that that, you know, your one character is a part of, they're not getting paid and they're being told, you know, like essentially like we don't know where the money is. We don't know what's going on, but you just have to keep waiting. And eventually maybe you'll get paid. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like baffling because it's like, you know, these people are being asked to, to risk their lives on a daily basis and they're, they're not getting a paycheck. Yeah. It was one of the most, it was really hard to see that and to see it happen so many times. Um, and it's not just that they're not getting paid. I mean, like these guys, that ranger unit, like a lot of them had guns that didn't work. A lot of them are wearing sandals um, they're underfed, you know, uh, like for, I want to say for like two years, they didn't have access to a car, to a truck when they were out there. And so like they're on foot, you know, they're patrolling on foot, long hours. They're out there 28 days out of the month. They're not seeing their families really at all. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. I want to say that like one to two Rangers were killed each year I was there. And so eventually it started feeling like death was the only outcome for them. And there is also like, I oftentimes felt more in danger with the Rangers than I did with the poachers. You know, the Rangers get calls at 3am getting pulling them into situations where there's live gun battles happening and they have no idea what's going on. They're all using the flashlights that are on their cell phones to like see see what's happening. And it's it's extremely dangerous. And it feels like they're not equipped for success. 
and it's it's interesting because one of the when I left this pro when I was finishing this project, I was like, what, like how do I make sense of this? Like what? Like I didn't come out of it with any clear solutions to solve it. The only thing I really felt strongly about was that like the solutions are going to come from within. It's not going to be outsiders stepping into a Kenyan issue trying to solve it because we've seen that happen a lot and it hasn't been super successful. But when I would ask poachers and rangers, like, what do you want people to know? Like, what do you think would help the situation? Both sides agreed. If rangers were treated better and paid better, poaching would happen less. Hmm. I can't tell you the number of poachers that were like, it's so easy because we can, we just, whenever we see a ranger, we can know we can pay them off because we know they're under-resourced. We know they don't have enough money. We know that they're like trying to take bribes. And it just like, it just set, it's just, it feels like the system is just set up for corruption. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, is that like, I mean, that like we were watching, I mean, again, it's like we're, we're viewing this through the eyes of these characters. But with the ranger unit, did you gain any insight into like what was going on? Big picture? Yeah. So that was something that like the the rangers would actually ask me at times. They'd be like, can you go to our bosses and try to figure out like what's going on? And can you like speak on our behalf and stuff? And I was very much so not open to doing that while I'm making the film. We're keeping it in a contained perspective for the guys on the ground. Like that is the piece in the conversation we feel like is missing. And their confusion, you know, their uncertainty around what was going on was something I wanted audiences to feel. I wanted audience to feel that frustration that they were feeling and not being paid. But then once I finished the film, um, I took it to their bosses and I, you know, I showed them what, what we had made. And I asked them, I was like, what is going on? Like, these, like why are these guys not being paid? Um, and I was really disappointed to hear them say, they're not filling out the paperwork correctly. Oh my God. And I was just like, are you like, I was literally like, I just spent three years with this group and I watched them do the paperwork correctly. Like, how can you lie to me about like, you know, and it was just like, I feel like I was being gaslit. I feel like I was being gaslit. Um, so I don't know. I, I, and, uh, yeah, I'm pretty frustrated and disappointed to say, I do not know. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you, you said you, you've taken this film and, and showed it to, I mean, these guys' bosses, like how high up in, in the government have like uh, are there plans to kind of you know screen this for government officials to try to like show yeah. people like what's going on at that level? Yeah, we're working right now on figuring out the local impact strategy. Um, it's super. I mean, it's really really. I I would love to do. It's inter- you know it's it's interesting. I'm like really dying to go back to Kenya and to do like screenings of this with ranger units and then do kind of like underground screenings with poacher communities. Um, on one hand, but on the other hand, I, like I know the reaction is going to be bo- like, they're going to be kind of bored. <laughs> they're going to be like, this is like, this is so boring and normal. Like, why are you showing us? Like, what? <laughs> right. Like this is just our normal everyday life. Like why would somebody else care about this? Right. right there's nothing new here. Like this is like, you know, par for the course. But, uh, but I do think that there's a conversation that could be had. And I actually think like having, uh, having talks and a uh, community events with this film with leaders in the industry and people that are like raising funding for these kind of things. Like I think that it, it could have a huge impact. Um, Cause at the end of the day, like we're not like, this is an experiential emotional experience. This isn't a context information based film. And what I hoped we would do with it was, was help people realize that there's a, there's a big middle gray space to this whole situation that's being overlooked and it's being left out of the conversation. I think it's vital to kind of like, acknowledge that and let it be a part of it because on the surface this is about animals but underneath like it's really about humans and it's really about the way we treat humans and right now um i don't think the way we're treating humans is leading us to a place where we're going to save the species uh one of the most i mean and this um i'll I'll give kind of a spoiler alert for before this question (laughs) um 
But, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, you, you mentioned early on that, you know, these two main characters uh, that you're following in the film, you know, one of them starts off on the poaching side and the other one starts off as a ranger. And, you know, I feel like as the film progresses and, and, and definitely like, I mean, there's this moment and, and, and you explained that you initially didn't realize that they were cousins. Um, and and it, it's the same at the beginning of the film. You don't know they're cousins and then you you see them interact for the first time and it's revealed that they're cousins. And it is this sort of aha moment in the film. And like it, it also opens up this opportunity um, for uh, the character who is the ranger to provide information to his cousin who is a poacher um and you don't see like it you, you don't see that happen right away but you know that there's this you know economic you know strong economic incentive for that information to be shared and you're just kind of waiting to like see what happens I, I guess i'm just curious like what that was like from your perspective because you obviously had this this moment while you were shooting on the film where you realized that these two characters were related like what was that like I was in shock. I mean, the fact that X waited eight months to tell me that, mm. I think says a lot. Right. Because when it came out, I was like, how did you not mention this earlier? And he was like, why would I? That's like so normal. You know? Right. Like, it, like their situation is not unique. Like there are many other people who have cousins, brothers, fathers and sons who are on either side of this issue. And so for him, he was like, yeah, like why is this such a big deal? And that made me realize like it's not a big deal. <laughs> it's actually like mm. common. And it kind of ties into that idea I was saying earlier. It's like, this is a community. This is a community that grew up together. Everyone knows each other. There are no secrets. There are no secrets. Everyone knows everything that's going on. Um, and on the surface, you know, I think people play roles. Like when rangers see someone poaching and their boss is there, they'll do what they need to do to keep their jobs. But when they have an opportunity to take a bribe and feed their kids versus kill someone that they know or are friends with or are related to, they're going to take it. Mm -hmm. And... I got to a point where I started to understand that. Like that made sense to me. And I started realizing like if I was in their shoes, I don't know that I would be doing anything different. And once that moment happened, once I started feeling that way, it, it kind of became about how do we kind of, how do we edit this so that audiences can go through that experience? Because for that, for that, us, that was eye opening. You know, that was like, I didn't think I'd get to a place where I was able to like understand some of these choices on the surface are so devastating and, and so, you know, morally wrong. But eventually started started to kind of come around and to see it from their perspective. And, you know, in the edit, we were using films like Heat. We were using the show Breaking Bad. Like, these were kind of our references for structure and for character development over time. Like, seeing someone that on the surface makes choices you don't agree with, but underneath is someone you still care about deeply and want to be with. You want to see them make their choices. You want to see the ripple effects of them. And that was just something we felt so strongly with both X and Asan. Absolutely. I mean, you definitely feel that as... as uh as a viewer, I mean, the, the relationship between these two cousins is, is so compelling. And you're just like, I mean, you're really on the edge of your seat, like waiting to see like what's going to happen next and, and, and how they're going to deal with these situations. Um, and I mean, I guess, you know, my, my next question is, you know, is, is, is about, um, the way you chose to end your film, which is just so like, I don't, it's, I don't know how to feel about it, right? But but it's um, it, it's surprising, right? Because I mean, you 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 talk about this, you know, this sort of like revolving door between um, the poachers and the rangers, um, and how everybody knows each other, 
and people are going back and forth. You know, you learn that, you know, Asan, the character who is, you know, starts off as the ranger, you learn that he used to be a poacher. But then to see, you know, X at the end, like, give up poaching and, you know, to see him training to become a ranger was it was quite a surprise to me. And like just the juxtaposition between like that, that moment and him like resigning to 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 do this thing, um, you know, comparing that to like your your opening scene where he declares that that he's the king. Right. Mm-hmm. is just it's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, what like did when when that happened, like, did you know you had the ending to your film? Well, let, me, let, me t- let me tell you a story. <laughs> so we finished the film like, you know, I think it was late 2017, like December 2017. And X had not become a ranger at this point. So we'd finished the film, we color corrected, we did the sound mix, we'd done the conform, and we're preparing to premiere it in New York City in April. Um, and I want to say it was about three weeks before that premiere, I got a call from X and he said, hey, I'm becoming a ranger. And I said, bullshit. And I hung up. I literally hung up on him. I was like, don't, don't mess with me. Like, don't mess with me. And I just hung up. And the next day he calls me back and he's like, training starts in three days, just so you know. Like, are you coming or what? And I was like, are you serious? Like, you're actually doing this? Like, I was like, why the heck are you doing this? And he's like, well, I can't poach anymore. And my uncle got me this job. Or he got me another job. He got me this opportunity where I can train. If I pass training, I can become an informant. And they're going to pay me twice as much as Asan's getting paid. And it all clicked. I was like, aha, I wow. see. You're not required to be out there 28 days out of the month. So it started making sense. So I rushed over to Kenya, filmed it. It was like editing in the field, you know, sending footage online back to the editors in New York and scrambling to try to get it all in place before we screened it. Um, and honestly, like, I didn't have time to think like, I mean, in my mind, I was like, it's done. You know, like there's just nothing left that can happen. Um, and also really like that choice you made at the end really brought it all full circle for me. That was like, it was like, he's now, he's now shown us just like the, the, the thin line between these two sides and how the side you're on doesn't actually mean that much. Um, when at the end of the day, you're, you know, you're in this situation and you're, and you're feeling like, so you feel so few options in, in, in your ways in which you can survive. But yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I didn't have a lot of time to think at, at that point. It was just like, get this in the, like film this, get this in the film, play it through and, and hope that it all makes sense. Um, so you mentioned that you're, you know, looking forward to, uh, to, to going back there and, uh, you know, screening the film both for ranger units and potentially for poachers as well. I mean, let me ask this. I, I assume that, that, uh, you know, your two main characters have, have seen this film at this point. Oh yeah. Many times. Yeah. So the main characters, they, I showed them the film before we even finished it. It was really important to me that they had a chance to watch it and that could, you know, give feedback. Um, because, in a, you know, part of the access in this was like, I told them early on, like, I want to be there for everything. But if I ever, if you ever want me to stop filming, you can tell me and I'll stop. Or if we ever film something that you're not comfortable with, you can tell me and we will, um, we will delete it. And so that in the first, you know, two years of production, first year and a half, really, the first year and a half of production, I would sit with them and delete footage that they didn't want existing. They didn't want people to see. Wow. But then by the end, the last year and a half, like there was none of that. In the in the end, it was like they had fully, you know, they were fully entrusted what we were doing and they really wanted people to see everything. So, I mean, they went through the whole spectrum. You know, they like laughed, they cried, they were happy, they were angry. Like it had, I mean, it's a surreal experience to watch three and a half years of your life get boiled yeah. down to minutes. Um, 
So it was very emotional, very intense, but you know, they, they're very proud. They're very, very proud of what we made together. Um, and they believe that people should see it. And it was amazing because when we, we took this film to the Zurich Film Festival and that festival actually flew X and Asan to the festival wow. for Q&As. And that was their first time leaving Kenya, first time on a plane, first time going to a movie theater. And it was to see their own film. Um, and it was just surreal seeing them do Q&As because it's one thing for me to talk about it, you know, as an outsider kind of coming in and having experience, but for them to talk about it for themselves is just like so powerful, so powerful. And I, I wish we could do more of that, honestly. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they love it. They love the film um, and they think it's important. So is there a, a concern like for their safety, you know? And, and yeah, there was at the beginning, at the beginning, I was really concerned about that. And that was something we had a lot of conversations with them about, like, how do we do this without, you know, jeopardizing your safety or putting you in any type of legal risk? So I consulted with lawyers in Kenya and in the States and show them the film multiple times and ask them for feedback. And we, we together kind of figured out the lines that we could push and the ones that we couldn't. Um, and so from a legal standpoint, like no one in Kenya could watch this film and use it as evidence in a case. If someone wanted to go after them, they'd have to create their own evidence. Um, so from a legal standpoint, we feel good and we've kind of put in a few systems that if anything is to happen, everybody wants to go after them. We kind of like know what to do to kind of keep them safe because the last thing we want is for them to have um, any negative repercussions because of this. Absolutely. So I, I think they feel safe, you know, like they, they feel comfortable with what we're showing and what we put out. And I think also the fact that like there's nothing in here that anyone locally isn't aware of brings a lot of peace to them. You know, like at the beginning I was like, how are you going to feel about a show? Like I was like, how will the Rangers feel about me hanging out with you and then going and hanging out with them? And they're like, well, why would that be an issue? We hang out with the Rangers too. <laughs> you know, mm. it's like we, we all hang out together. Like, so yeah, that, that, it was a little bit of that like kind of outsider preconceived notions tripling, trickling into perspective. And then once I realized the complexities, it, it was not as big an issue as I thought it would be. So, I mean, that little anecdote you just told is, is certainly like very illustrative of that idea of breaking down these like preconceived notions of like what this really looks like on the ground. Despite that, right. Despite that, that, you know, there's there's not really any issue between you like going from one side to the other. Mm. I would imagine that you spent a lot of time building up trust, you know, of these like two particular main characters and and you know and and the sort of supporting characters that that were around them. Um, but I mean, when you encounter like you know other people, you know other people that they're interacting with, other members of like the the Ranger team. I mean, how did you deal with that? Like being the guy with the camera um, in, in those types of situations. Did some of these other people ever have like a, a negative reaction to you? Oh, like, yes, 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 yeah. yes, 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 yes. I mean, I remember in the first year, really towards the first the end of the first year when I was there, which is when I was like really starting to shoot, like there'd be times where like X and Asan and Lucas like had full trust, they were in full support what we're doing, but like the community at large didn't. And like I'd go into situations where people would throw rocks at me. I mean, in Kenya, there's a belief that when your photograph is taken, it's sucking your soul that a piece of your soul is taken from you when you're photographed. So culturally, like there's a lot of reasons why people would not want me and a camera there. And so there was a point I remember where X was like, let's put the camera down. I just want to spend the next two weeks meeting with all of the village elders and anyone in the community that has questions on what we're doing. And we literally held an event where people could come and just like talk to us, ask us questions and hear about why we were doing this. Um, and so that like that was huge. That was a huge thing because when that when that isn't done and when there's not open communications between the community and the filmmakers, it's just a ton of rumors that get spread. You know, a ton of rumors get spread around, and in a small community like this, they move fast. And so that was really important to like kind of build relationships with people that weren't necessarily in the film but were like important at the, for the community at large. 
Um, so they understood what we we're doing and why. Um, and so that went a long way. But yeah, it, there was definitely time. I mean, even with the characters, there'd be times where the characters were like, they would look to me as a source of money. Like they'd want me to help. You know, I remember one time Asan's son fell and broke his arm and they wanted me to like pay for the hospital bill. And it was this like really tricky line of like, I can't give you all money. Cause then it's like, I'm, I'm essentially funding the activities you're doing. And when it's this sensitive, like it jeopardizes the whole thing. And so I was really clear with them early on and stuck to it where it's like, money's not going to be transferred between us. But I did find other ways to kind of like equalize the relationship through teaching English lessons, through teaching them how to type, through lots of cooking, did a ton of babysitting. But in those moments where I wouldn't give them money when they would really want it, it hurt the relationship. They'd be like, if you're not willing to buy us food right now, you don't care about us. Right. You know, it'd be a, you don't care about us. And so we're done. We're quitting. And every time they quit, quit the project, every time they're like, we don't like you anymore. We're done. If you cared about us, you'd pay for these things. And it would be, you know, I'd be there in Kenya just waiting weeks. You know, at one point, like three, four weeks would go by, no contact. And I just wait. But eventually we'd always get back together and we'd always like talk it out and figure it out and kind of find common ground and get on the same page. Um, but yeah, that that process of like coming from a different place financially and having all the privilege, uh, as many outsiders do, and then to become a part of their lives, but to not interfere, to not help financially was so heartbreaking and painful. And and hard, but it was also important to make sure that their motivations were not financial. I wanted to make sure that they wanted this to be made and they were giving us access because they believed that people should see what's going on and see the reality. And so we stuck true to it and it slowed down the process a lot at times. It really delayed things, but I think if we, I don't think there was any other way we could have done it. Um, and I will also say that like once we were finished with the film and when everything was done, we asked all the wives of the main characters, like, you know, what can we do to kind of give back what would be most helpful? And they told us if you can set up a fund to get our kids through school, that would be the most meaningful thing. They would all they all would say, like, you know, for us it's too late. You know, it's too late for us to go back to school. It's too late for us to try to like find a new or different life. But our kids still have hope. So set up a fund for them. So we've set up a fund to get all their kids all the way through college, which they're really, really thankful for. And I'm I'm really happy we were able to do that. Wow, that's awesome. And is there a way I mean, do you have a, you guys have have you set up a way for um, We haven't set anything up publicly. Um, there have been a lot of people that have reached out like private, like individuals who have reached out privately being like, we want to help out. Like, what can we do? And so we always like connect them. Um, gotcha. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, really powerful, amazing story. Super fascinating to hear, uh, all the sort of behind the scenes, uh, stuff about how you were able to, to accomplish this. You've been finished with this film for, for about a year now, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what's do, uh, are, do you have? Do you have a new project in the works? Um, what's I next do, for you? you know, I'm working on three films right now. Um, one film is about a robot in Hong Kong named Sophia. All right. and another film is about a spiritual teacher in Costa Rica named Teal Swan. And then um, the third film is about teenagers in Arizona and what happens when families feel like their kids don't fit into society. All right. So you're staying busy. <laughs> yes, yeah, staying busy. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's I. I can't think of uh, anything else to ask you. I mean, unless unless there's like anything that you you think is important that we haven't touched on. No, I feel like that was great. I feel like we covered a lot of the bases. And if you have any other questions or something else comes up, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm around. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks again for for taking the time. Um, yeah, really awesome to to hear about the sort of stories behind the story uh, in this. And uh, congratulations, man. Really super impressed with the film uh really honestly blew me away thank you matthew i appreciate it and thanks for having us on the show yeah you bet right. yeah
You've been listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, editor of today's show. Special thanks to When Lions Become Lambs director John Casby for making time to visit with us today. For more information about the film, please visit www.winlambs.com. Music in today's show via the free music archive through Creative Commons licensing. Gradual Sunrise by David Hillowitz and Siesta by Jazar. And if you haven't made a pledge to our show, please head over to our patreon.com slash wildlands collective page. And lastly, lastly, be sure to send us a voicemail to info at wildlensinc.org. Email info at wildlensinc.org. We really, really want to hear from you. I'm Gregory Haddock saying stay safe, stay mean, stay a lean green fighting machine. Till next time. See ya.